Salam and welcome back to the TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. My name is Salim Qasim and once again I am your host. Wow, it's been um, over two years since I've actually done that. Um, honestly, it's amazing to be back and I'm, I'm really excited to host and, and, and produce these uh, conversations. I think really important topics we've covered in the past and I want to cover again. Um, and uh, with that, I'm going to jump straight in and introduce you. Uh, my my guest this week is Hasnain Jaffa. He is a social justice educator and activist. He spent many years with Citizens UK in their Birmingham chapter and the National Board. Uh, formerly a board member of Sponsor Refugee, formerly a director of Basic Income UK. For many years, he's been studying and talking about racism, white supremacy, imperialism and capitalism. Um, so firstly, thank you very much for, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. I'm really <laughs> excited to be here. Introduction, happy with? Yeah, yeah. Does that cover the, the majority of it? Yeah, it covers everything we need to cover, I think. So um, I guess to kind of frame this conversation, um, when when I was offered to, to restart the TMB podcast, we're, we're in the middle of uh, a very intense period, I think, in the Middle East. Um, mm. What we've been seeing on our TV screens and on social media, I think a lot more this time as well, yeah. um, has been... Uh, I think very difficult for a lot of people and I, I thought it would be important to try and have a conversation not about the here and now and about what's happening today yesterday and tomorrow but rather more big picture so we're talking about Palestine um, and the, the systems of oppression so the and, and it's something that when we spoke about this beforehand you said that you have been kind of on this journey and you've been studying these like wider systems for many years and when you've spoken about it in communities that hasn't been well received or people haven't really understood yeah. or resonated with it. Yeah. Um, and then now with what's happening, people are a lot more receptive and understanding. So I think to start off with just your your general thoughts and, and feelings over what's been happening uh, in Palestine the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, yeah, we talked about this, you know, not centering it just in the here and now, but talking about the systems in a wider context. And can I just say... It's really hard to do that right now. Mm. It's really hard whenever you're in the middle of something like what we're seeing happening in Palestine and the death and destruction that we're witnessing. It's really difficult to zoom out and view it in this almost cold and calculated way. Yeah. It's also really important. It's really important that we're able to recognize the patterns, that we're able to see why this is happening and you know where it all comes from and make sure that we're part of the solution both now and long term going forward so yeah that's why when i look at what's happening in palestine um from the beginning it's been clear to me you know how the colonial exploitation that we've seen for centuries is happening again right now that when we talk about systems of white supremacy we can see how those systems have played out in multiple events over the years and, you know, culminate in the kind of destruction that we're seeing today. So, yeah, that's what I mean when I say we zoom out and we look at the yeah. global systems of oppression. But you did a, a an Instagram live a couple of days ago and you spoke um, very early on in the live about witnessing what's happening and, and one of our roles being witnessing what's actually taking place. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I think th the thing is what's happening now this is a genocide, I think we have to be clear about that, um, is not new, is what I was saying, in terms of it 
is not new as in genocides have happened before mm. and that even today this isn't the only genocide that's happening today what is different i think about the genocide that's happening today is that it is literally being live streamed to each and every one of our mobile phones and i know that previously you know atrocities like this have been on social media and has but when you put together all the different factors the scale of the genocide the rate at which people are dying right now and the fact that every moment of it is being live streamed to our mobile phones you get two things one is you get real clarity that the most urgent thing that we need to be acting on not just as muslims but in general as a human community right now is stopping this genocide right um but the other thing is that the the fact that it's being sent to each and every one of us is a challenge is we're being asked to witness this we are being asked each and every one of us what our role in this will be what are we going to be doing about mm. it and that's what makes this especially important that we respond in the right way to this i think um for me personally one of the things that i found really difficult is is to actually watch the the videos that are on social media so often you'll get the, the the like the cover on on the front of it that will say you know uh, this this contains graphic image whatever personally I'll often skip past because I f- I find it incredibly difficult even sometimes I'll see just a couple of seconds of one of these yeah. clips and it it is it, it's incredibly difficult to bear and at the same time I also feel like I don't want to um burden somebody else with that do you know what I mean like it's not a nice thing because because on the one hand I think from everything that we're seeing on social media you feel like an urgent need to tell people what's happening to report on the numbers to show and and the thing is there's so much footage mm. there's so many clips and i think you know people listening to this would have seen more images of dead children than anyone should ever see in their lifetimes I and mean, that's that's in a few weeks period we've seen more clips of dead children than should be happening that, in this of, of course circumstances. like it just and yes you're right so and there's a few different ways of thinking about this on the one hand for us we're witnessing it and we have the privilege of being able to turn our phones off mm. and look in another direction uh, the other but thing I, i guess sorry the uh, thing the, the question on on my conscience sometimes is like should i like should i feel bad about doing that about that luxury that i've got or is it just a case of you know what actually i i i don't want i i shouldn't have to i know this stuff is happening um do you know what i mean it's a very I difficult position it's a difficult question and it's i i don't think it's got the same answer for everybody i think everybody has to think about where they are on this journey mm. and figure out what what would work best but i would i would say the helpful thoughts to think about when you're witnessing all of this is first of all uh, our mental health is important uh, you know the fact that we are actively responding to this right in having this conversation or in general we are actively responding to what is going on mm. that's the important thing and sometimes by browsing these social media videos by looking again and again it can it can impact our ability to act it can impact our ability to resist and i and i think in that case it does make sense to dial it down a bit but what is also important to recognize is that the palestinians are not exhibitionists in the way they're showing their dead to us in the way they are displaying their suffering to us like they're doing it because 
they are asking us to witness. And so the witnessing itself is important. Mm. And really, when we come down to brass tacks, why is the entire world right now, or what we're seeing is this galvanization, right, of society. Like we're seeing an increased interest in what's happening and an increased resistance to what's happening. Why is it happening? It's happening because we were asked to witness and we are witnessing and we are responding. And so when we turn away, we have to recognize that we're choosing not to participate in that witnessing and we have to be conscious about it. That's not to say don't ever do it. It's to say when you do do it, be conscious that what you're doing is stepping away mm. and also do step back in because we're being asked to witness. I think that is important to keep in front I, of mind. I, I think for me personally as well, one of the things I've been observing, because it was interesting, like I I wasn't at, at the beginning of this particular conflict, I didn't have the, the TMB podcast, for example, to be able to talk about this stuff and bring people on and explore it and whatever. So I was like taking stock of everything that I'm seeing. Yeah. And one of the things that became apparent and a, a friend kind of um, put it to me in this way that there's almost this footballification of of the conflict. Mm -hmm. So you have people waving different flags. You have people on the Palestine side, on the Israel side. Yeah. And I think Piers Morgan is a, is a great example of, of like that um, battleground, so to speak, but like on a very... Uh, superficial level mm. so he brought on Muhammad Hijab and he had a rabbi there and it's like you know what's going to happen the tit for tat and it's just entertainment yeah um, and and you know Pierce Morgan is, is loving all of the the clicks and the engagement yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, the reach yeah, yeah, that yeah, he's yeah. getting he's you know he's almost central to this particular conflict because he's he's garnered all of the um, the, the attention of, of people yeah like his Basim Yusuf interview for example was I think his most watched but probably one that I, I've not seen a clip shared as much as that yeah. long interview anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I feel like uh, there's there's that element to it, and that's somewhat died down a little bit. Although still, people are are very uh, up for jumping on the bandwagon mm. about talking about these issues and whatever mm. else. But then, like I said, the the kind of the conversation I wanted to have with you was about going a little a step deeper mm. and talking about the wider issues mm. here. Because my my concern and my my worry is that the longer that this goes on, the more people become desensitized to it. Mm. Because it's just it's just happening every day. Mm. There are people dying. There are there are heartbreaking stories. But you know, one when one person dies, it's a tragedy. When when a million die, it's a statistic. Mm. And we don't want to get to that level. Mm. So I think. For me, it's about understanding what are the, the, the deeper root causes of something like this. We're not going to sit down today and resolve and, and create peace in the Middle East. They've been trying, people have been trying to do that for years. So from your perspective, based on, on the journey that you've been on mm. and the things that you have studied and, and talk about to communities, mm. um, you know, things like you said about imperialism and capitalism and whatever else, I guess the, the 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 first question I have for you is how how do you frame or how do you see the world today through that lens? <laughs> You've got yeah. time, so take your time. <laughs> it's not a, I mean, not it's a small a, question. It's a difficult question. Um, how do I see the world um, with these systems in place? So I think I am a normal person, right? So I'm a parent. I have kids, I, I go to work, I have a business, I earn money, I like nice things like everyone else, I drive a car, etc. I operate in this world like anybody else does. I think that the difference I see is I'm trying and 
trying, it's a journey, mm. to be more conscious about the systems in which I'm participating. What do I mean by that? I mean that there is a difference between, and we can bring this back to Palestine action in a minute, but there's a difference between going to work and asking your boss from a promotion, knowing full well that actually the bulk of what I'm asking for, I am owed because I am the laborer and actually I have done the work around this. And there's a difference going to work and asking your boss from a promotion from the perspective of, oh, you're a manager, you must be better than me, please bestow me with some more money. Right now, that difference is one thing, it's consciousness. That's all it is. The difference is that one person is conscious of his value and his worth, his place in the system, is conscious of how flawed the system is, but will still go to work and will still ask his boss for a promotion. Mm. That is, I think, what I see as the main difference that I am trying to inspire is this idea that what we need to do first is to become conscious of the world systems, how they operate, how they work, how they impact each and every one of us. So when Palestine happens and I look at what's going on in Palestine and think about how we act when it comes to Palestine, I wasn't I wasn't massively surprised by the fact that the Labour Party sat on their backside during a vote in Parliament for a ceasefire because I understand that the system was oriented towards colonialism and this is a colonial exploit, right? What I do is, yes, I wrote to my MP. I'm sure most people wrote to their MPs, but I wrote to my MP knowing that I'm doing this only because I understand that this is the most efficient way to call for a ceasefire right now or one of the efficient ways in which we can call for a ceasefire right now. I also understand that in this parliamentary democracy that we live in, power doesn't really sit there. It only sits in Parliament because we allow it to sit in Parliament. Power resides within each one of us and within the collective. Like These are big concepts that I'm just throwing out there and you can ask me more about them. Mm. But when you ask how I see the world, I think it's participating with this recognition and consciousness that not everything is as it seems and that the narratives we're being told are lies and what we're being told is how the world has to operate or is the best way for the world to operate is essentially a lie. And the basis of that lie is the capitalist system, is the growth imperative, is the idea that we constantly have to grow capital. That is the basis of the entire world system. It's interesting because um, this morning I just finished reading The Consequences of Capitalism uh, oh, yeah. by Noam Chomsky. So the lecture series by Noam Chomsky, I can't remember the co-author or the guy who gave the other ser- uh, set of lectures. I apologize if he's listening, probably not. <laughs> um, but that was was very eye-opening yeah. uh, because you start to look at the world and, and he looks at you know historical events and, and everything through this, through this kind of theoretical lens, which is yeah. something that I think we don't do often enough. And I, yeah. I know I've been guilty of that. So for the longest time, I'm dealing with the here and now. So I'm yeah. like, okay, this MP that I have, his track record is X, Y, Z. Therefore, yeah, yeah, he yeah. cares about this, this and that. But that's just a very, very like small piece of the puzzle. Yeah. It's like when you zoom out and there was something in, in, the, in the book that blew my mind. Um, so America was founded in 1776. I'll yeah. let you get back to your thing, but there's just one thing no, I, no. I have to put out there. 1776, America was founded. Um, guess how many years of peace America has had since it, since then? 50. 20. 20 years. 
So that's that's yeah. 222 years out of 239, they've been in some form of conflict. 93% of America's existence, they have been in some form of conflict around the world. And and again, then then within the book, he talks about the the capitalistic industries and the, the military and all of this stuff. And you just realize that that we're we're not living in a in a normal world. So even I, I can't remember the exact figure, but the the military budget for the U.S. is I believe six hundred and fifty or seven hundred fifty billion pounds a year. And that figure is is if you add up the next ten countries in the list, <laughs> that figure is bigger than that. It's it's astonishing, mind blowing. It's mind blowing. But you know, an empire has to spend lots of money on their military. Like, so, anyways, I, I want you, I want you to to go back in. I just needed to get that off my yeah, chest. Yeah, yeah. Literally, that the the military budget was this morning, and I was I was <laughs> I didn't even I, I had to share, put it out somewhere. Um, so yeah, you were talking about capitalism. Um, well, kind capitalism of un- underpinning in the start, but but then we we get to you know we get to more obvious. Forms. For, the, for this, what we're seeing now, what we're witnessing, I think one of the first things, so a few months ago, we had Ukraine happen, right? Or a, a couple of years ago now, right? We, we had Ukraine happen. And, you know, as Muslims, I think we all had similar feelings around the Ukraine conflict. There was this sort of, oh, yeah, that's bad. And then there was like, oh, hang on. The world reaction is interesting. Because we, like as young men, you know, we've lived through the Iraq war, we've seen what's happened in Syria, we've, and we have had this constant battle to get anybody to even look at what's happening. We've had this constant, you know, I was a, a board member at Sponsor Refugee. Sponsor Refugee was this organization where we were getting communities like churches, mosques, synagogues, you know, different communities to commit to sponsor a family from Syria to come and live in the UK. Mm. It was actually really simple, right? They needed to find a house for them. I think it was £10,000 a year, the commitment. You know, it was not a big ask. And, but, you know, we did a lot of work going out to these communities and trying to recruit them. We got about 29 or 30 over a span of two years, and we were proud of the work we did. I mean, we were volunteers, and we are like, yeah, we got 29 or 30. And then Ukraine happened. And the doors opened like when I say the doors open like households in the UK in their thousands are signing up to give their spare room over to a Ukrainian refugee like it was mind-blowing I don't you know I'm not wishing anything else for the Ukrainian refugees yes we should give them houses but where were you mm-hmm. like where was everyone when it came to Syria when it came to Iraq right like for me that was a moment where white supremacy became like the clarity I gained in that moment around white supremacy and the way in which people are viewed as different depending on the color of their skin, okay, depending so, on what so part of the world they're from. Do, do you do you put it down specifically to white supremacy? Because I mean, I, again, like I, with with that particular situation, Russia is seen as a bad guy. You know, through, throughout history, throughout uh, cinema, the Russians have always been bad. Now, this is the enemy of the West. Um, and and they're bullying a smaller country, Ukraine. So it's in our strategic advantage and to our benefit to support Ukraine in that particular situation. Um, it, do you think, because Russia arguably white as well in that mm. sense, right? So I think this is a question I get all the time, is why do you call it white supremacy and mm. not racism, for example, right? And I want to 
just take a step back and explain that for a minute because it links into what we were talking about earlier and it links into Palestine as well, right? Is that uh, when I talk about white supremacy, I'm talking about a system, a system that hasn't emerged. So, you know, years ago, when we think about the times of the Prophet, when we think about what the Quran talks about, there was always this idea of discrimination. Discrimination is when one group of people discriminates against another group of people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is that discrimination has always happened between groups of people on almost like an even playing field. I don't like you, you don't like me, okay, we stay apart, or we might fight sometimes or whatever. Racism and white supremacy was entirely different. It's a different system. It's only a few hundred years old. It was born as a result of this growth imperative of capitalism. So what happens is something like, for example, the British Empire, they are radically motivated to grow their wealth, to grow their capital. They look out and say, okay, we need to make this growth of capital more efficient. We need the land, the resources, the natural resources of countries other than our own. We need cheaper labor. How do we go and just get that? Which is what they did. That's colonialism, mm. right? It's like, how do we go and just exploit? They, they needed two things to make sure that there was no revolt in their own lands for that. One was motivation, right? So people need to be motivated to believe whatever we tell them. How do you motivate people? Wealth, prosperity, good health, you know, capitalism brings that anyway. What else do we need? We need justification. The justification was was not just manufactured through words. The justification was manufactured in a number of ways. One of the ways was the creation of racism. When I say creation, I mean that British universities, European universities, they had scientists doing experiments on skulls and talking about how black people have smaller brain sizes or if your nose is a certain length, then it affects your emotional capability. I mean, these are just examples I'm throwing out there, but this actually happened. This is what we know is racial science. It affected, you know, they talk about how they're psychologically stunted or how they're emotionally stunted or how they're intellectually stunted. All of this created this justification. Now, when we enslave black people, actually, they're fulfilling their rightful place in the world, right? So now, that's what racism was, a formal, scientifically justified system where you could put white people at the top and then by pigmentation, create a hierarchy with black people at the bottom. So that's why we call it white supremacy because that system had white people at the top and had everyone else underneath. And that system was formally abolished, right? So now there's no scientist in the world who would say that your nose length corresponds to your IQ. You know when it was formally abolished? It was formally abolished after the Holocaust because what happened with Hitler was that the idea of white supremacy took a life of it got, like took on a life of its own. It went beyond just the growth of capital. Yeah. And he started applying this racial science in a way that allowed him to discriminate against Jewish people to the extent that he wanted to exterminate Jewish people. And it led to the Holocaust. So so just uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm I'm just trying to piece together what you just said and and that's that uh, these theories of of uh, white supremacy or whatever racial science as you called it were were put in place as a means of 
um, benefiting financially from like a capitalistic sense. Is that what you're saying underpins all of this? A hundred percent. And and sorry, just to extend that yeah. to talking about the Holocaust, then you're saying that the the idea of white supremacy then essentially took a life of its own and and in its extreme form then became what we saw in Nazi Germany, the Holocaust and, and the Jewish community. Yeah. I'll give you another example of when the system of white supremacy took a life of its own. Zionism. Zionism is uh, was a very small branch of Judaism, right? The, and it was almost a small fringe branch of Judaism. Like most Jews had never heard of or accepted the ideas of Zionism prior to the Balfour Declaration, right? In 1930, whatever. No, I'm, I'm not good with dates. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be so, bringing that. Yeah, I, I had it all in my mind. So, I mean, 1917 is when Theodore Herzl wrote this, you know, handbook of Zionism, right? And he went to the British at that time. Mm. And do you know why he went to the British with it? Yes, Palestine was a British colony, but Palestine wasn't the only other option. They had considered other options, other lands where they might have a Jewish homeland. I found out recently Uganda was on that list. Well, there you go. There were random countries. The Russia was on that list. There were, there were random places on that list. Yeah. But they went to the British and in his letter to... I don't know, one of the British lords, he wrote, I come to you because you have experience with this. This is a colonial project. Like, that's what it was. Mm. That's what it is. So when we see what's happening in Palestine today, like, and you ask me about Hamas, like, this has nothing to do with any of that. This was and always is, always has been a colonial project since... 1948, since the first Nakba, what has happened in Palestine has been a colonial project. And then the same tools that justified colonialism back in the day, you know, this idea of racism and white supremacy, those are the same tools today that are being used as propaganda to allow the rest of the world to turn away from Palestine. So one of the major ones is the racial science enabled dehumanization of non-white people. Mm. And what we're seeing today, the reason why when there is a an attack, when in terms of scale might be minuscule compared to what's going on, but if the victims are white, the world is enraged in an entirely different way. But when the victims are people of color, consciously or subconsciously, there is this feeling like, oh yeah, but you know. You know, so I, I, I work in the charity sector. Yeah. And I always find it incredible because we, we, we work in countries like Afghanistan, for example. And when, when there are literally atrocities that take place there targeting minority communities, where they're fundraising, we're, we're dealing with literally the families where our, our staff are in the hospitals and, and supporting uh, those individuals. Yeah. But like, it, it doesn't, firstly, it's not on the news here. Like, you, like when we're trying to find information, it's very, very few places that will even report on it. And yeah. it, it always makes you think like, and, and again, this is something that Chomsky mentions in, in uh, The Consequences of Capitalism, that you know, in our newspapers, on our media generally, you always have to look at what's not being said. Yeah. And, and what he means by that is that there are a million and one things that happen any given day. Yeah. Why have particular stories been chosen? Yeah. Why is this talked about? Why is this not talked about? It's a conscious decision or even a subconscious decision every time. Um, and and it, it comes back similarly to like, you know, the, the example you mentioned about Syrian refugees versus Ukrainian refugees, 
where um, we saw, and even with the Iraq war um, and, and Afghanistan mm-hmm. um, way back when, uh, I, I saw firsthand um, the, the impact that it had on people that I know, on their families and, and their lives, because you're currently worried about people back home, but that, that isn't covered. No, no. One's, no one's talking about that. No, exactly. There's always this massive disparity between certain people and others. Um, and it's just, it's just fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And it's also different now. So the Ukrainian refugees, the Syrian refugees, the Iraq war, all of that, we, we, we witnessed that. I'm not even sure I had the language, you know, when the Ukrainian refugees thing happened. Um, I, was, I, I had you the had language a feeling. But, but definitely when the Syrian refugees thing was, I didn't really have the language to think, what, why, is, that, why yeah. is it so hard, you know? And then there was this like, you know, white middle class movement towards supporting refugees. And, and we used to see these swings of, you know, um, they say in the UK, 25% of people are always anti-refugee. 25% of people are always pro. And then there's this 50% in the middle. Mm. And depending on what the Daily Mail or The Guardian is reporting on, it just swings this way and that way, right? Not so when it comes to white refugees. Like that whole dynamic changes completely. Mm. But Palestine is different. Palestine has, has changed the narrative because... I mean, it's hard to know exactly why, but partly it's because of the social media and how prevalent it's been on social media. Partly it's because of the Black Lives Matter movement and how that had already started awakening conscience around racism a little bit, largely in in an unconscious way, but it it started there. But somehow this has come at a time where it has become undeniable. Like the conversations I have been having now where to say to someone that it's because they're not white has become almost a mainstream idea, has become almost like, because it's so undeniable. Okay, but uh, just on that point specifically, I'm sorry to interrupt, but from my understanding, 76%, there was a poll done at some point, 76% (coughs) of people in the UK want a ceasefire. Yeah. Okay. Yet still... Those in power, although ironically, we live in a democracy where the, those in power represent us. Mm-hmm. Um, but but those in power have, have voted against the ceasefire. Mm. Um, I, 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 I don't understand personally um, what's going on right now, um, mm. because because on the one hand, on social media, and even I think The Economist did a really interesting poll where it's like uh, everyone like young people essentially are on the Palestine side of things, whereas older people over 60s are all pro-Israel or whatever. But there seems to be this huge disconnect between the people, the demos in democracy, and the system. Mm. Um, but, but, how, like, but nothing seems to be giving at the same time. Like People are getting more and more, and I think that's the thing, with this particular time, I've always said it's been so different. This, like, you know, I've been to Palestine protests, like, my entire... I think we've probably been to some when mm. we were kids. Mm. I've been my whole life. Mm. Um, but this particular moment in time that we're living through right now, there's something that's awakening in, in people that, you know, I would have never dreamed would turn up to a protest, post about it, care even. Take direct action. Take direct... Take, and, yeah, and, and I'm yeah. almost, like, making me look bad, where yeah. I'm, I'm trying to go to Tesco's. And I'm like, no, you can't go to Tesco's. It's... Uh, yeah. 
I'm like, where is this coming from, right? Yeah. And it's amazing um, that that people are so, um, I guess, captured by what's happening. Yeah. But I do think that we're 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 missing something here. We're, yeah. I mean, the the political example you give is a good one because it is exactly what we're talking about. The the what 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 Palestine is doing, what's happening to us, this consciousness that we're talking about is it's a concept called critical consciousness. I know Chomsky has a different terminology. Yeah, like common for sense, it. he talks. He about. calls it common yeah. sense, yeah. And I think liberation scholars in general talk about this consciousness as one of the first stages. Like this needs to happen for society in general. This needs to happen to precipitate some sort of revolution. By mm. revolution, I mean a, a dismantling of the current systems and. A bringing about of new systems in the world, right? But the political one, I mean, is another reason why there's this awakening is happening right now, right? But part of the reason why Palestine is so different is because Israel is so bad at this. Like they're they're like childish toddlers in the way they're going about this, right? Mm-hmm. There has been no tact, no sort of. At least America and Britain have this weird sort of dystopian maturity about the way in which they conduct their empires. Israel doesn't have that. And so now we're in the situation where they're indiscriminately bombing. Their soldiers are celebrating the death of people. They're talking about Hamas, but they're occupying the houses of people who have left Gaza. Like there's this major disconnect, right? And then this disconnect flows everywhere. It's like it's like peeling apart these layers. And in the peeling is where the consciousness is being awakened. And one of the things that is like peeling away is the illusion of democracy, right? Like what, what is democracy? We have this idea that every four years or five years, we get to go and cast a vote. And because of this one vote that we get to cast, we have the power in this society. But it's nonsense, right? Because like you said, 76% of people want a ceasefire right now. And yet forget, like we want a free Palestine. Forget that. We'll compromise. Let's just have a ceasefire for now. All we're asking for is stop bombing children. Like, very simple, very easy request. So much so that 76% of people can jump on board with that request, Mm. right? But the political class can still completely ignore it. To the extent that the Labour Party, 82% of Muslims voted for the Labour Party at the last election. 82% of Muslims. When... When we knew, when we realized, when we recognized that Labour was going to be in power at the next election, we were happy about that. When Joe Biden became the president of the United States of America, we were celebrating because it was the end of Trump. None of them can even go as far as calling for a ceasefire or any sort of restraint. (laughs) No, in fact, we're getting the opposite, right? We're seeing like Keir Starmer go out there and justify the siege on Gaza, right? Like, where is the democracy gone? Am I going to vote for Labour or for the Tories at the next election? No, because they were bo- they have both proved themselves not to be able to stand up to the biggest genocide happening right now. And can I jump in? Is there any chance that either of the parties, uh, that any other party will be in power apart from those two? No. There is no chance. Yeah. So the democracy, the democratic illusion for me, my democracy is gone in the sense of having somebody in power. So I'm glad that's where you went because yeah. that's what I wanted to, to to touch on. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because I I, I want to have that kind of yeah. broad, broad yeah, yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's important. This yeah. is something I did want to address at some point. Yeah. Um, not with yourself, maybe with another guest talking about this 
the politics and the party politics and 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 how we engage as Muslims. Like you said, eighty two percent of Muslims voted for the Labour Party, um, and the there was that Muslim census that came out very recently. That basically said that the majority of Muslims said they would not vote. Five percent. Five percent now is the Labour Party support amongst Muslims. Uh, yeah. According to that census, which had thousands of of respondents. Now, I personally look at that, and, and that what what frustrated me is that they said they wouldn't vote at all. Mm. So they're disengaging from the political system. Mm. But I feel like, um, yes, we we don't have a perfect political system here, but we have some ability to to have a say. Mm. as to who the elected leader is and who our representatives are and all that stuff. Are you, do you believe in, in disengaging uh, entirely from, from the political system, so not voting? Muslims shouldn't, or no one should vote? No, no. And, until we have the, the revolution I, that you spoke about earlier. <laughs> I, think, I think we have to, I think we should vote. I think we should engage politically. I think we should do it with a complete consciousness about what we're doing. It comes back to that first thing you mentioned. It comes back to the first thing. About understanding. Like, there are two ways of looking at this, right? We want a ceasefire. I am going to write to my MP and I'm going to ask them, or I'm going to vote with this understanding that, oh, I'm voting for you because I really like your policies and I want the Tories out and I want to hear what you have to say. And please, Mr. Powerful Man, give me what I think society needs. Mm. Or there is, I know that this system is imperfect. Because actually a democratic system needs to have far more direct democracy than we have here, Mm. right? So I know this system doesn't work. However, I know that by voting for you, I might be mitigating some harm, for example. I also know that I am only voting for you for this reason. And actually, I will be holding you accountable through the year. And I also know that the only reason this system stands is because of my and everybody else's participation in that in this system. So bringing it back to Palestine, the way to think about it is when we act now for a ceasefire even, like we can write to our MP and go and protest and try and convince them to vote for a ceasefire. It isn't working, right? Like we're seeing it. Yeah. But rather than feel despair, we have to recognize that we have the power to uphold that system or to collapse it. The same with all these world systems of oppression. Collectively, it's only because we participate in the capital system, in the democratic system, in the system of white supremacy. We participate in these systems. That's how the powerful benefit from the system. The moment we withdraw our participation from the system, the system collapses. That is the power we have as a collective. But, but in that, order to a, get... Until you have a critical mass. If you don't have the critical mass... And how do you get happening. critical mass? Well, you t- I'm hoping you're going to tell me. Critical consciousness. So the first, that's why okay. it's always the first step is that we need to be talking about having these conversations which are happening again and again. Mm. And this is why Palestine and the Palestinians especially are so incredible for what they're doing. Like, you know, when we talk about Mu'taz and Bizan and these Palestinian journalists who are, who are risking their lives to send this message out there, and we call them heroes, like they are truly heroes because the messages and the footage and the way in which they are conveying that message to the rest of the world, like this is enabling this conscious awakening to happen. This is not just about Palestine, but Palestine is that center of a movement, I think, that would free the world. And that's why we can't stop at a ceasefire. A ceasefire is the first step. It has to happen. We have to stop the death and the destruction. But 
when the ceasefire happens, and it will, it'll happen when it gets too expensive, when it gets too inconvenient, when there's too much political pressure. When it happens, we move on and we ask for a free Palestine. And when we've got the free Palestine, we move on and we ask for a free world. And I think when Palestine is free, then the world really has a chance to be free. So there were, we, we spoke ahead of the, the podcast and there were a few, there's, there's two things I've written down that you mentioned which I thought were interesting. And I think it leads nicely to a question specifically about what's happening mm. now in Gaza. Uh, you mentioned Congo. Um, if you remember on that call and you were talking mm. about the destabilization and the tech, I think it would be good to, mm. to to touch on that a little bit. And then you also spoke about the COVID vaccine, um, mm. which is a, a, a random throwback, I think, for a lot of people. But the question I wanted to ask, and, and I'm kind of feeding you the answer here, like in terms of how you line it up, um, is is what is the, the, if we assume that underpinning everything is capitalism, which I think you are... Underpinning everything. Underpinning everything is capitalism. Yeah, you're you're happy with that. Like yeah. this is your your version of the world. If if we yeah. can, um, what's the capitalistic advantage to what's happening today in uh, Gaza? Is there one? And so, like I said, uh, if if you can reference the other stuff, because I think that's also really interesting and important, just to give context as to how these things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, capital. So the growth imperative of capitalism, specifically, which is this idea that we need to keep growing capital. Mm. Um, does I think is essentially the root of these systems which then enable global oppression. That's not to say, so um, the Holocaust, which is the example I gave earlier, is a good example of how the ideologies that were born as a result of this capital gain, this growth imperative, can sometimes take on a life of their own and go out of control. What's happening in Gaza today does have some capital undertones, right? Two things in particular you can think about. One is natural resources. So there is gas in Gaza, right? And in fact, in most conflict zones in the world, especially where the US is involved, you will find some form of natural resource, right? That that they want or they want access to. We know about the export of weapons and what that's doing to the UK and the US economy and how that's benefiting them massively. We know that for Israel, the land grab itself is a big win, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but these, so there is a capital incentive to the invasion of Gaza. But more importantly, what I was highlighting is the idea that actually the, I, the colonial mindset and the white supremacist mindset that is enabling the genocide in Gaza were born from capital imperatives. Like that's really important to keep in mind. But yeah, I mean, uh, essentially every global system that that perpetuates um, oppression in the world is born of the growth imperative of capitalism. And what's happening in Congo, our discussion around that was that essentially there's a genocide happening in Congo right now. And it's not being talked about that much. And I haven't been talking about it that much, largely because of what's happening in Palestine. But really... The reading I've done about Congo and my understanding of it has enhanced because of what's happening in Palestine. When I say they're waking up the world, you know, this is part of mm. that waking up the world. Um, in Congo, the uh, they are one of the richest countries in the world in terms of natural resources, in terms of what's they're in the center of Africa and they have incredible mineral wealth, right? But obviously, we don't see that prosperity 
in terms of the country and the way it operates. And the reason we don't see it, I think we are, I think we grew up with this white supremacist idea that it's because their governance is not good. You know, black people aren't great at governing themselves. Africans don't know how to, they're savages, you know. And even though we might not consciously have said that, it's always been in the back of our mind. If the British had these natural resources, they would be doing much better, mm. you know. Like that's the kind of mindset which we have. In reality, it's because they have, they were colonized previously. When they weren't colonized, they have been kept in a situation where external forces, imperial forces, the US, the UK, have kept them in a situation where they can never settle. They have always had strife and suffering and fighting in those regions because by keeping that strife and suffering and destabilizing that region, it keeps the cost of lithium, cobalt, low enough for our tech to be affordable to us here in the UK and in the US. You know, there was a great experiment done a while back like, I'm going to zoom out from Congo and just explain this from a global perspective. Somebody took a hamburger, a beef burger from, from McDonald's and said, this McDonald's beef burger, I'm making up the figures now, it's $4 in the US, right? And said, if we break it down and think about the supply chain, and if we paid everyone involved in, you know, the manufacturer, like the people who grew the wheat for the bread, the, the, who cultivated the land, whatever. If we paid everyone fairly, and if we were, you know, the same way we would pay US workers or UK workers for this burger, how much would this hamburger be? The meat comes from Brazil. They worked out, it would work out to $35 a hamburger. That's a hamburger. This was done in 2019. That, that figure's the actual figure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. fine. Wow. Yeah. And now apply that to your tech for a minute, mm. right? Like these systems are so interconnected. This is why when we, when you deal with one, you deal with them all. So like, iPhones are expensive enough as it is. iPhones are expensive enough, but where where, where, where is, is that money going? Money? Yeah, of course. Like you know, Apple have the biggest cash reserves. They have more cash reserves than most countries have, mm. right? And at the same time, there are people, literally children, working themselves to death to mine cobalt for Apple's iPhones. Like that disconnect that we have, but we need it. We need to keep that tech cheap so that we can have our iPhones and our Pixels and our Macs as cheaply as possible. And the moment you correct that, what happens? Our tech becomes so expensive that no, not everyone can afford to have an iPhone, mm. not everyone can afford to have a Mac, and the world system, the economy starts shrinking, right? And yes, it's a necessary sacrifice that we need to make, but this is exactly what the powers that be need to stop from happening. So it's easier to keep people subjugated, to let these systems keep running. I don't know if I've covered what you wanted me to talk about you around Congo. COVID. COVID. <laughs> that was the other one that I, Co I thought COVID was interesting. COVID is a good example because, uh, yeah, it was actually, a, um, it, was, it was an organization that got in touch with me uh, around the vaccination of COVID um, because my dad was quite ill with COVID. Mm. And so they wanted to understand my experience at the hospitals and everything. But the campaign they were running was around the COVID vaccination. Now, I'm not a conspiracy nut when it comes to the COVID vaccination. The COVID vaccination was a great piece of tech and it worked, right? Like, and we can see the results of it now. It worked and it stopped 
And, you know, people know more about that than I do. I took it as well. But... Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you're not like... <laughs> but there was a conspiracy when it came to the COVID vaccination. The conspiracy was right in front of our eyes. Like the COVID vaccination was developed at different universities. The government gave grants to the universities to pay for the staff that worked on the development of the COVID vaccinations. The COVID vaccination, when it was discovered, when it was invented, whatever you say, created, it was then given to be produced to um, big pharmaceutical companies. And then these big pharmaceutical companies resold it back to the government and essentially made a profit on it twice. And then they said things like, oh, we will hold the price for this long so we don't make any profit on it. They have made billions off the back of it. But this is how capitalism operates. Like our governments, even our governments cannot work in our best interest. They have to work in the corporate interest because they need the economic growth, right? Like there is everything right now is geared towards the growth of capital and everybody else can go to hell. Every person, every, you know, homeless person in the UK or the child mining for cobalt in Congo. Nothing matters except the growth of capital. Again, I don't want to get too caught up on this, but do do you? Per- I'm just intrigued. Do you personally think that if there was no capital incentive, the COVID vaccine wouldn't have been developed as quickly or at all? It would have been developed, and I think just as quickly. I think what we forget is that we're human beings. Mm. Like, think about the people who you admire. Why, why couldn't why why couldn't we have developed it without private companies making billions? We could have. Why didn't we? Because the economy needs to grow. Because we, the government needed that economic win because the growth of capital is this obsession. Like it's a devilish shaitani obsession that we've always had. <laughs> I, I think the, the problem is, and I think there is this concept of trickle-down economics, right? But I, I don't think many people have seen any of the money that's yeah. been made on the COVID vaccine, for example, in our day-to-day lives. Post-COVID, yeah. restaurants are more expensive. Our gas uh, and electric bills have gone up. Fuel prices are everything is more expensive now. Yeah. Um. And and no one's getting paid more. So no. I, I, this is one thing I I still haven't got my head around is like where all of this is going. Just I I want to uh, come back to one thing you said and just add some of my own input. And and you were talking about uh, Palestine being a catalyst. Um. And this particular instance. I mean, like how it led you to read more about Congo. So when I was deciding what to read, I'd finished the book I was reading previously. Um, I was doing a, I was reading a lot of personal development stuff, mm. like very you know, productivity, mindfulness, all of this stuff. And because of what was happening, I felt like it's not sufficient. It just feels too small-minded mm. to 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 just read something else like that. Um, and that's why I picked up this Noam Chomsky book. I'm mm. now reading the the New Age of Empire, which is behind your left shoulder. Yeah, we'll talk about books and stuff in a second. But I I personally think it's it's. You know, just the last couple of weeks I've been reading these books has been very, very eye-opening because I've, like I said earlier, I've never personally looked at things on like a bigger structural level. Mm. We always look very, very small scale. We always look very here and now. Um, and it's it's just interesting. That's why I said I, I wanted to have this conversation as a much broader conversation than just kind of um, zooming in. Yeah. 
in the interest of time, there's a couple of other things I want to talk about. So I'm mm. going to kind of swiftly, very poorly segue on to the, the next thing, which was, again, the live that you did a couple of days ago on your Instagram. Um, I'll, I'll put the link to your Instagram in the, in the description so people can find you and know that I'm not just making up this live. Um, but you spoke about uh, the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and usually people say that he was a reformer. But you said mm. he wasn't a reformer. He was a revolutionary. Mm. Um, you didn't. I, you just said he was a revolutionary. You didn't say mm. he was a reformer. I was waiting for you to say the word reformer. Um, and then you spoke about uh, the Mahdi and everything else. So I, I wanted to, to kind of, again, th- this conversation around Palestine, around the systems of oppression, I wanted to kind of re-anchor it and, and give a bit of your perspective on like a, an, an Islamic historical narrative Mm. Um, I feel like I'm just asking you to do loads of like essays in a in a. I mean, it's philosophy. a lot. We're, we're we're unpacking <laughs> a lot here. And look, the the important thing to recognize about all of this, whether we talk about Islam, we talk about critical consciousness, we talk about Palestine, and we keep saying it as zooming out and looking with a wide lens at these global systems. It's not just that though, right? Like you're talking also about how you're having an internal realization around this. I'm having an internal realization about this. These systems are not just out there, Mm. they're within all of us as well. And actually the work for liberation that we have to do starts here and then emanates outwards. Like it's really important to recognize that it's all connected. We're not talking about two different things when we talk about that. And that's how Islam was as well, right? The Prophet had this, it came to Mecca and had this really... Um, spiritual, not individual, but really spiritual personal message to each of us, right? Like the the Quran, the Mecca surahs in the Quran are very sort of personal, very spiritual um, messages. It was when he went to Medina that he had this polity, suddenly this political system which he was looking after. But what I mean when I say the Prophet was revolutionary, and by the way, I don't think it's a contradiction to what people are saying. Like when people call him a reformer, um, I think it's just a, they're using it as a revolution. They're using that word, but what yeah. they mean is revolutionary. Because actually, what would the difference be? In my eyes, the difference between someone who reforms and someone who revolts is that a reformer works within the system. I think of liberals as reformers. They say, oh, yes, the world is terrible. Now I need to work and join the Labour Party and become an MP and try and have better policies. Whereas someone like me says, yes, the world is terrible. We need to tear down this system. Like, that's a different way of looking at it. And I'm, when I talk about revolution, I mean, Salim, let's come up with a better system by which we can have the same outcome that that policy would have on a local level, but you and I will do it. We don't rely on the current systems of power that exist. And that's what the Prophet did. The Prophet didn't rely on the systems of power that were there. In fact, he went and he 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 smashed the statues, right? In the, like that was his revolution. It was revolt. When, when the Meccans came to him and said, we'll give you the sun in one hand and the moon in the other hand. His response was, uh, no, sorry, what he said, you could give me the sun in one hand and the moon in the other hand and I will not. Abu Talib, Abdul Muttalib, these people stood up for the Prophet against the current system that was there. Mm. What the Prophet did was awaken people spiritually and politically, right, individually and collectively and created a system that was entirely outside any of the current norms that existed on his own. And he was hugely successful in doing it. But 
what we have to recognize is when we talk about the Mahdi and we talk about the Mahdi from a Muslim perspective, but you can apply it from any religious perspective in terms of all Abrahamic faiths have a Messiah or something like that, right? Even non-Abrahamic faiths. Even people who believe in liberation movements but don't have a faith attached to it, they have a belief around revolution or like some sort of tipping point or turning point, right? I think they're all the same thing. And actually what we have to recognize is that the Prophet had this major incredible impact in his community, but he didn't fix everything in one go. And yet when we talk about the Messiah or the Mahdi, we expect that he or she in some faith traditions will come and the entire world will suddenly be just and peaceful. It's not going to work like that. If it could work like that, the Prophet would have done it. The way it's going to work is that that will happen when all of us collectively can support that happening. And that's why what's, what Palestine is doing for us is starting that process, this awakening people. The first stage is always going to be waking yourself up to the system, waking those around of you up to the systems, like recognizing why things happen the way they happen, how things happen. When we can operate consciously in the world like that, then we can move to see how we can change it. Um, that leads very nicely, I think, to the, 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 the sort of... I don't like, and, and since, since day one, when, when we started with the Muslim Vibe, um, I was very keen on, on not creating problems mm. and like saying, oh, this is wrong and this is wrong and mm. this. But like, okay, fine, you can highlight problems, but then also come up with solutions mm-hmm. and 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 let's you know talk about the roadmap roadmap out of this. So, in terms of specifically on Palestine first, uh, what what action can people take? Like I said, I felt more helpless than I ever have. Bear in mind that you know I've I've uh, we, we set up the Muslim vibe in two thousand and twelve or fourteen two thousand and fourteen. So ever since then, whenever I felt like, um, okay, this issue we need to be talking about, I would I would be able to put out an article, put out a podcast, the image on social media, and we're talking about it. We're waking people mm. up, whatever. At the beginning of the conflict, I wasn't doing this podcast. I wasn't mm. doing anything with, with the Muslim vibe. I felt helpless. I went to the protest. I took my kids to the protest because I wanted them to have an introduction like I did mm. to the cause specifically mm. of Palestine um, because I, I, I think the protests are, are very... Uh, small and insignificant in terms of like what they're able to achieve on a political sense, mm. but I think on an, from an internal perspective, they're huge and can be transformational. Mm. So I, I I don't ever belittle or downplay the importance of people attending protests, but I think as a realist, I remember going to the Iraq War protest. Two million people on the streets did nothing, mm. did not did not change things an inch, and we've seen how many millions have died as a result of us, our inability through protest to actually leverage and, and, and have any change. So I guess the question is like, you know, what can people do? I also feel like, sorry, to, this is a bit of a monologue, but I also feel like people, we exist in echo chambers on social media. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by and large, you're, you're, the people that you're sharing content to are going to be on, on your side of things. You'll have the odd person here or there. The Zionist comments on my reels would disagree. But. Okay, fine. But <laughs> I, I think for most people, you know, on your Instagram It's stories, true. I understand what you mean by echo chambers. So, yeah. so it, we, we have echo chambers, right? We have protests. We have writing to our MPs. There's BDS that people are, are talking about and doing now. And, and like, you know, I, I've seen videos from... 
Kuwait and places like this where like Starbucks is entirely empty. And I think whether Starbucks is directly funding, fueling, helping Israel or not from this like capitalistic, uh, let's look at the West as this massive conglomerate perspective. I think it's a very it's a very good thing. And and and, and if your attempt is to, to destabilize the, the control or the hold that the US, the, the, that block, let's say, has on on the world, then yeah, that's how you kind of go about doing it, right? Like money, it's all, it's all about money, essentially. Um, it's my long-winded way of asking, what can people do? Okay, so that, yeah, a lot of good things raised there. So Usually I raise good things. <laughs> the first is to say that we have to recognize what the ask is. Yeah. So right now we have to, and we are acting in frenzy to get a ceasefire to happen. Like, that's the priority right now because we need to stop the death, the destruction, the annihilation of a people, essentially, right? Yeah. Like, um, and when we're operating in that sort of mode, then we have to operate within the system. So consciously, like I said, recognizing the limitations of the system in which we operate, but we have to operate within the system. So we're writing to RMPs, we're protesting, we're asking, but we're also in parallel with those actions, we are doing direct action. Direct action includes things like boycott, right? Boycott is really powerful. Boycott is powerful because generally to disrupt the capitalist system, you disrupt the flow of capital. That's what you do. Mm. Um, because in the same way as the system operates without us seeing exactly how it operates, the same can be true for the opposite. If you think about the capital system when it comes to Gaza, we talked about weapons. One of the big campaigns right now is the shut Elbit down, which is a Israeli weapons manufacturer. And there's a lot of campaigning happening in the UK. Like this stuff is having an impact. We know it's having an impact because companies that work with Elbit are now dropping the work that they're doing because they don't want to be involved. The landlords of Elbit are feeling a huge amount of pressure. This, the ceasefire will happen when it's in the interest of the system for the ceasefire to happen. We have to keep that in mind. It won't the happen. The system of capitalism or the system? The system of capitalism, the po political powers that be right now, mm. right? The example is apartheid in South Africa, yeah. right? So boycott had a big role to play in ending the apartheid in South Africa. We know that the apartheid in South Africa didn't actually end, right? Like we know even today that 50% of white South Africans live in, sorry, 50% of black South Africans live in poverty. 1% of, uh, of white South Africans live, live in, in poverty. poverty like, yeah. there is a major, like, it never really ended. And that's what we'll come on to next. But the formal system of apartheid needed to be broken down. One of the ways in, that, in which that happened is it became too economically unviable for the South African government to uphold the system of apartheid because of the sanctions, boycott, divestments. The same when it comes to the formal British Empire holding on to their colonies. The same when it comes to slavery and the abolishment of slavery, right? When the system finds it too expensive, it's not economically viable anymore, then it ends. So what we need to be doing is make it inconvenient for Israel to continue what they're doing, for America to continue supporting them, for weapon manufacturers to export to them. That's why our actions now, given... You know, we were talking um, on the way here about how there's a sense of despair, right? Like mm. there's a sense of uh, what do we, wh where, 
where do we go? We've done the protesting and we've been out there, but I think the important actions right now are disruptive ones. Strike, boycott, shut Elbit down. Like, we have to disrupt the system. We have to be in a position where we recognize our participation in the system is complicit because without us, the system collapses. So by going about life as normal, we're just participating in the system again. So it's difficult. And I say the struggle is difficult, but mm. for a ceasefire to happen, that's what we have to do. But then we have to go beyond, right? A ceasefire will happen. It will happen, you know, uh, for any number of reasons, but it will happen. And when it does happen, we can't stop because out of the, you know, horrible things that are happening in Gaza, there is this incredible light that's shining through as well. And I genuinely believe that they're at the center of something incredible. I'm not saying that what we're experiencing now is going to lead directly to the revolution and change the world. I'm saying as a as a community, as a human community, we have we are making great strides in a very short amount of time because of the Palestinians. And so the next stage is going to be freeing Palestine. The next stage is going to be much more about reimagining our world without these global systems of oppression, about creating viable alternatives to these systems of oppression, about talking to each other and connecting on a human level with each other and raising our critical consciousness, raising our consciousness of these systems, operating as very conscious individuals within these systems to the extent that they, don't, they no longer can stay upright. That's what we need to work. To. I know it sounds difficult uh, to imagine. So, so the thing is, we, we don't have the time to get into the, the things that are on my mind right now. But just very briefly, I'm, I'm thinking about how you mobilize as a people in a global sense. Mm. It's very easy, right? We have technology, we have social mm. media. But what I'm seeing, or what I've seen over the last few days, is prominent um, activist voices online being deplatformed, mm. having their Instagram shut down, having their uh, Twitter shut down. And, and I'm seeing that actually, like, because the world has been built on this kind of, again, capitalistic uh, house of cards, let's say, mm. uh, we are at the, um, the whim of, of the people who control mm. these platforms. Mm. And if for whatever reason, whether it's about a country, whether it's a, whatever it might be, if we are saying things that do not um, fall in line or sit right or are not liked by these people, then, then you're going to struggle to really get this stuff out there. It is interesting, though, how they still haven't been able to shut it down properly, right? Like everything we're seeing out there. Mm. Yes, these big voices and activists who are sharing lots of content are being shut down, right? But we're still seeing the footage out of Gaza from mm. smaller accounts and from because what we are doing. But I'm talking about you know when you the reason I'm getting this now is that I I I kind yeah. of don't want to get into yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. But when you talk about collective consciousness, yeah, that requires leaders. So, for example, I, I believe that, and this why I said okay. you don't have you don't have a chance to rebuttal. I apologize, <laughs> but like you know, you, you look at the civil rights movement. You have Malcolm X. Mm. You have um, Martin, Luther Martin Luther King. Right? These were individuals who, without social media, without Facebook, without Instagram, were able to mobilize through newspapers, through radio, and whatever else. Mm. But they were figureheads. They were mm. crucial and important figureheads and are studied till today mm. by, by, by thinkers, mm. right? Now, 
we we leadership is important i think in this um, i don't yeah okay so <laughs> ne- next time next time um the the final thing um and i asked you to to bring some books with you yeah but i i think uh what i've realized uh just the last few years i've started reading a lot more mm. and i regret like with a heavy heavy heart the amount of years i spent not reading and and when i was reading i used to read a lot of fiction mm. uh which is fine uh nothing against fiction mm. but i just feel like there are so many ideas and it's something i i told you as well you know on the call before that your uh, one of my university lecturers said this to me that you know the the thoughts that you are capable of having mm. are limited to your vocabulary so there are thoughts that people cannot possibly have yeah. because they don't know these words exist and you yeah. think about a baby for example babies yeah. can't have complex thoughts about what's happening in the middle east yeah. they don't know any context but they also don't have the means of doing mm. that and and essentially some of us can be like mm. that right if we're not reading if we're not educating ourselves um you you can easily find yourself just like sleepwalking through life 100% so uh you know you said you started this journey a long time before um 2023 mm. what are some of the books that people that you think people can get started on on Palestine yeah. but also broadly on yeah, on, on, on all this, of these this things. This is a really important point you make about reading because I think in the age of social media we feel like the amount of content we're consuming we know everything about everything mm-hmm. through these short form videos and actually reading really helps to consolidate that sort of but yeah one of the books uh, is the one I recommended to you which is the new age of empire yeah. which I feel like to me that was a really eye opening book um I brought some others along with me as well. So Just Angela sure talking to the mic when you <laughs> Angela Davis. The books. <laughs> Angela Davis is yeah. uh one of the leaders of Black Liberation Movement still alive, still great, but Freedom is a Constant Struggle is great because it has connections between the Black Liberation Movement and Palestine as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a really good one to get into just now. I brought Less is More by Jason Hickel. Less is more is all about this growth imperative of capitalism and its relationship to the climate crisis but in general its relationship to colonialism as well and how so and how we battle it he has a bunch of ideas it's actually a very accessible very easy book to read so definitely one i would recommend um tangled in terror is by sahima manzur khan and it's about islamophobia but again zooms right out and connects it to these global systems of oppression and it's one book which i think everybody in the muslim community but especially leaders of mosque centers imams like should be reading uh, tangled in terror and finally um i think palestine a socialist introduction by sumaya awad um is a really good way of looking at palestine through the lens of these global systems that we've talked about um, i also brought the biography of malcolm x Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> which uh, which I think is a great uh, a great read mm. and really easy again to read. Okay, thank you. Um that I I'll again I'll put the 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 I'll I'll list out the books in the in the description so people can find them if they want to buy them. Yeah. Um but yeah, I don't know. I was I was thinking of like concluding making some concluding statements about the 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 conversation, but I I feel like we've covered a lot. Yeah. Um well, I would say in conclusion that Oh, you go for it. Do you want to end out the podcast? Say thank the thank the viewers, tell them to like and subscribe, do all of that. Go for it. <laughs> no, just just <laughs> do the conclusion, I'll do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the conclusion would be that, you know, I don't want to decenter Palestine, right? Like Palestine and what's happening in Gaza right now is in my heart and it's in all our hearts, and especially as Muslims. You know, this is 
everything. But I actually want to almost center Palestine and think of it as the central point in a much wider picture. Mm. And that what's coming out of Palestine now has the capacity to transform the world. And if everything we've talked about feels overwhelming and too big picture and it's not what you want to think about right now, I think what you can take away from today is the simple recognition that there's more to it than just what's happening right now. And that if we don't, after a ceasefire, start addressing the global systems, then we enable the same thing to happen again and again and again. And that's the gift and the sacrifice that the Palestinians are making for us. And so we have to utilize that. I think that was a good good conclusion. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Hasnain. Um I know you came from Birmingham to do this as well. I, I do appreciate um, that. And um, I'm glad that I could have you on actually as the first guest um, and, and talk about Palestine specifically, but also uh, also with this broader mm. concept, because it's, it's stuff that I've, as I said, I've been reading and thinking about quite a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, I guess that draws to a close uh, this first episode of, of the Muslim Vibe um, new season, I guess, because it's been like a year, I think, since the last episode. Um, so thank you again, Hasnain. And I think the hope, inshallah, is that we're going to do uh, two episodes a month. So one every two weeks. I don't know nice. what I'm telling you. I don't think you're, well, you're that bothered. I'm this interested. Is more, <laughs> this is more for the listeners. So yeah, the, the plan is uh, two episodes a month. Um, I want to try and make these pieces of content, these episodes, um, things that you can listen to at any time. So it's not necessarily, even with this conversation, for example, I told Hasnain beforehand that I don't want it to be specifically about, okay, how, like, why a ceasefire is important. Obviously, that's important in the context of what's happening. And of course, we want a ceasefire. But I think talking about um, issues that we're experiencing here and now, but looking at it from a broad perspective is, is important. Um, and, and, and that's the aim and the hope, I think, for, for this, uh, I guess, iteration of the TMV podcast is that I want to really focus on trying to have conversations that people can listen to at any time in five years, ten years, as long as, I guess, the, the systems of oppression are still, it's still in place in the same way, then there'll still be relevant conversations, right? If we have a revolution, we can just scrap the whole thing. That'll still be again. relevant, like learn about history. <laughs> you can learn, these, these will be a nice history lesson. Um, but no, thank you all for, for, for listening and for watching. Uh, we are on YouTube, we're on Spotify and all the other platforms. If this is the first time you've come across the, the podcast, then please do subscribe, um, like, follow, all of that stuff. And also leave like a nice five-star rating wherever you leave your reviews on whatever platform uh if you think it's four stars or below we're not interested in hearing from you um <laughs> but yeah thank you guys very much and inshallah we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode <laughs>